The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Patricia Raskin's Positive Living, the program that brings you practical and inspiring principles for living more authentic, engaging, and passionate lives. Created by Patricia Raskin, a catalyst for positive change. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of the host, guests, and callers. And now, here's your host, Patricia Raskin. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome. Welcome to Patricia Raskin Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com, which is America's Voice. Today, we have a very heartwarming and heart-wrenching and very special story. Our guest is Melody Mosey. Her book is Haldol and Hyacinths, A Bipolar Life. Melody Mosey is an Iranian-American Muslim activist, attorney, and award-winning author. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Christian Science Monitor, the Guardian, among others. She's been on CNN, NPR, PRI, and many other outlets as well. And she's a UN global expert and has written blogs for the Huffington Post. And she's really looking here at expressing and sharing her story, her very powerful story about um, mental illness, about being active and being an activist in this, and really understanding uh, the misconceptions and misunderstandings around mental illness. Welcome, Melody. Thank you so much for having me, Patricia. Yeah, I really appreciate you coming on. Let's let's talk about why you wanted to write this story. It's very, very personal. Yeah. You know, for me, I've always been an activist, like you said, uh, and I have worked for my own community as an Iranian-American Muslim, as a woman, as a feminist. I've worked for the LGBT community. I've just worked where I see people being discriminated against. Um, I have a very strong sense of justice, and uh, it's important to me. Uh, so when I suddenly became a part of this community of people living with mental illness, which 25% of Americans in a given year have a diagnosed mental illness, and in our lifetimes, 50% of us will have a diagnosable mental illness, um, yeah, that's not a tiny minority of people, and yet I realized we are so quiet, and as a result, our rights are ignored and denied, and our views are overlooked, um, especially in minority communities, I think it's really important that we start sharing our stories because that's the only way that we can get rid of the stigma surrounding mental illness. And I think the stigma is far more disabling than any of these illnesses in and of these themselves, which says a lot given four of the top ten leading causes of uh, disability in the world, according to the World Health Organization, are mental illnesses. How did you determined that you definitely had this diagnosis? How, how did all this happen? <laughs> uh, it was a really easy diagnosis when it was finally made. It took 10 years for me to get an accurate diagnosis, which doesn't make me special. It takes most people 8 to 10 years uh, to get an accurate bipolar diagnosis. Um, and it was easy for me because I had an acute manic break. 
um, or rather an acute psychotic break in a manic episode. Um, and, and that was very easy to spot, um, just doing things very out of character. I got naked in public, crossing streets without looking both ways. I was delusional. I was having hallucinations. Um, yeah, that's not my normal behavior. I'm Muslim. I don't even drink alcohol, you know, so I look like I was on drugs. Um, and that was the first thing when I went to the hospital, when I was finally got my proper diagnosis, um, they tested me for methamphetamine and cocaine because they thought that's what I was on, but I was actually just on my own brain. Wow. <laughs> you know, one of the heartwarming parts of your story is your husband Matthew's total support of you. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, that's a real blessing and a gift. Talk about that. Yeah, you know, it was pretty amazing to me because at a point where I was ready to leave myself, if I could leave myself, uh, I sat him down and I said to him, look, you didn't sign up for this. We've been married for, it'll be 12 years this August, um, and I've known him half my life pretty much. So, uh, yeah, I, I sat him down. I said, you know, I love you and I care for you and I don't want anything bad for you. Um, and I wouldn't want to be with me, so I don't know why you would. Um, so I, I would totally understand if you wanted to get a divorce. And the first thing he said is, I knew you were crazy from day one. <laughs> um, and him just sort of reminding me that I've been eccentric before, you know, and um, just reminding me who I was and that I didn't need to uh, lower my expectations for my life in the same way that a lot of mental health professionals were telling me to. Um, just to have someone there to to tell me that somebody I respected so much, you know, I that's, I ask, think that's the power of love. Is, how, yeah, how much his support made a difference in your healing? It, I mean, it was huge that just to yeah. be able to have someone to reflect that back, you know, to be able to say you're a worthy person uh, for yeah. me to love. And since I respect him as much as I do, I thought, well, if he loves me, there must be something useful about this human being here. I think that's okay. And, and I really wanted to bring that out. Because one of the things that you mentioned is you say that you're a little skeptical of the effectiveness of psychotherapy. And if that's the case, what are your your thoughts? Uh, Yeah, sorry about that. I I was and have been. I've actually been seeing a a psychiatrist who also does therapy, which very few of those exist anymore. Um, And I've been seeing him for almost a year now, and it's been very helpful. Uh, I had some issues with psychotherapy because I think there were just a lot of cultural barriers, which is strange because I grew up mostly in the U.S. Um, but I've always sort of felt left out in a lot of different ways. I felt like my, either my faith wasn't understood as a Muslim or respected even, let alone understood. Um, but on top of that, also being Iranian and being born the year of the revolution. I was born in 1979. I have not known a time when the two countries I love most in the world, the two cultures I love most, and I feel so patriotic uh, towards both of them, um, have been utter enemies, you know. So it's very much a sort of bipolar identity. uh, And the idea that I, I couldn't be, somebody wouldn't understand that and understand that maybe that was also something that needed to be addressed in therapy uh, was hard for me, you know what I mean? Mm, very interesting. Yeah. So it was both the countries and the personality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In terms of having the opposites. Mm. Now, you talk about um, the stigma, the stigma in society at large and within the mental health community. Explain that and how we can work with that. 
Yeah, you know, it's it's one thing stigma in society at large. Like that's that's one thing. It's sort of expected that people may be sort of ignorant. Then fine. Uh, but what's most troubling to me is the stigma within the mental health community, um, and just that people would think within the mental health community to tell me at all to lower my expectations for myself or think that I wasn't capable. Uh, in one of the hospitals, and I write about this in the book. Uh, Over and over, when I looked through my medical records when I was writing the book, which I did, um, at one of the hospitals, over and over, they had written, patient has delusions that she's a lawyer and an author. Um, Turns out I was. They could have asked my family. Uh, If you're treating someone with mental illness, you sort of want to help them distinguish between delusion and reality. But at the time, they were sitting and literally telling me, you're not a lawyer, um, and in that scenario, really, who's crazy? Really, think about it. If I'm, I'm saying, no, actually, I'm a lawyer, and somebody's saying, no, you're not. You're just imagining these things. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, and, and I think that ties into the next piece, which is, you know, how, in, in particularly in minority mental health, how we have to work together to improve the access and reduce mm-hmm. the stigma. I mean, particularly yeah. in minority cultures. Yeah, and I think especially because there's a certain distrust that exists, and it's very legitimate. I live in North Carolina where we had a eugenics board until 1977 that sterilized thousands of African Americans for being so-called mentally defective or mentally feeble um, or feeble-minded, I think. Uh, Yeah, who weren't, who were actually just poor and black and happened to live in North Carolina. Uh, So that example, or Tuskegee, you know, there's tons of examples like this. Or even in the LGBT community, you think about the fact that being gay was considered a mental illness until the 1970s as well. Uh, So that level of distrust in different uh, historically marginalized communities is very legitimate. And I think if we sort of just dismiss it and say, why aren't aren't you trusting us? No, there's a reason we may not be trusting you. Uh, That may be standing in our way of getting help as well, and we need to start educating our own communities and start advocating for ourselves, and we need people within our own communities to start going into this field um, and taking it seriously. Uh, But there's still a lot more work that needs to be done, both on our own sides as people living with mental illness in these communities and also uh, from the mental health providers. Well, let's talk about the next step, which is, the diagnosis and misdiagnosis and overdiagnosis and underdiagnosis, which yeah. is a problem. Right. So what's your take on that? Yeah, you know, I think uh, overdiagnosis, especially among children, uh, not to say that there isn't serious mental illness among children. There is, and people, parents especially, suffer a great deal. Um, and my heart goes out to them because it's very hard, uh, especially with trying to find the right medications and dosages and things like that. Um, and they're also often dismissed by their their even healthcare providers. Uh, so no, it exists, but there's also the danger I think of overdiagnosis, especially with children whose brains aren't fully formed to be medicating them. Um, and then again, as I said, with minority communities, underdiagnosis and then misdiagnosis is for sure a huge problem, especially with bipolar disorder. It's just hard. I think uh, sometimes right, you're misdiagnosing bipolar for mm-hmm. schizophrenia. For example. Exactly. Yeah, and that happens sometimes, especially for men, it will happen. For women, it's much more common to be misdiagnosed as unipolar depression. Uh, and honestly, all of these names, they, they don't, the labels themselves may not mean as much, but the truth is, if you, diag- if you treat somebody who has bipolar disorder as though they have unipolar depression, even though their depression, that side of the illness exists, and it may look just like unipolar depression, 
treating them with antidepressants alone, for example, could feasibly push them into a manic episode and exacerbate their condition. And that ends up happening to a lot of people. Let's talk about the the pharmacies and the pharmaceuticals and the drugs. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of drugs that are prescribed for um, mental conditions. Yeah, and, you know, a lot of people like to say that mental illnesses like bipolar are just like diabetes. Um, And that's an easy thing to say, and I understand the need and the urge to do it just because clearly these are real illnesses, and yet still people treat them like moral failings and not like actually being real illnesses that they are, uh, which clearly they are, but they're not like diabetes in the sense that there's one medication like insulin that can treat all of them um, or even just one, right? So there's so many different medications and not everyone needs to be on medication, and more medication isn't always the solution. Uh, and there are a lot of conflicts of interest when it comes to pharmaceutical companies and the research that they're doing, and there have been lawsuits around them. Um, and, I, um, and that's a little scary, you know, for a lot of people. On one of my other programs, I interviewed an MD from the Boston area who's a psychiatrist, and he wrote a book on, um, on depression as well as on um, anorexia. And he talks about how you can use nutritional supplements and find out what the person is missing in terms of, again, nutrition and what's going on in their brain before you go to drugs. And he's been very successful with nutritional interventions. Sometimes it's, um, you know, it could be a supplement. Sometimes it could be an enzyme. And he's, he really has worked with this and has helped a lot of people and has written a book on it. Yeah, and that's so there's no money to be made in that in the same way, not the same kind of money as there is in pharmaceuticals. I understand, Uh, but we've got to be looking at how we're helping people. Yeah, it's called Great Depression Solutions. So, yeah, this is very important work that you're doing. So, really, you are an activist in terms of how you are, you know, trying to help people. What are some of the things you're doing actively right now, Melody? Um, Well... Right now I'm working uh, on another book, hopefully about the mental health system, Um, and the people who really know what's wrong with it are the people who have suffered through it, I think, more than anything. Um, But also just uh, I'm touring with Haldol and Hyacinth um, and meeting a lot of different people who are living with mental illness, and it's really, I I would not want to be anywhere else than the place I am right now because I'm... As much as living with a mental illness are, you know, we have troubles and problems that other people don't have. Um, also, the fact that our minds work differently, whether it's because we have bipolar or schizophrenia or autism or dyslexia, whatever it is that makes your mind work differently, uh, it, sure, it may cause problems that other people won't have, that so-called normal people may not have. But it also opens our minds in a way that we are able to see solutions where other people can't see them. Uh, I think there's something valuable and beautiful in neurodiversity and having people whose brains don't all work exactly the same, uh, and I'm grateful for that. I wouldn't want that part of my so-called disorder cured. Hmm. You founded a social movement called Hooping for Peace uh, in order to promote fun and uplifting protests in support of social justice. Mm-hmm. Can you explain this? Talk about the whole hooping. Oh, about hooping for peace. Uh, yeah, well, actually, I came up with the idea while I was uh, approaching mania, but it actually turned out to be a, a useful organization that I have continued. 
Um, I do very few things well. I write well. I hula hoop well. I speak well. There are very few things I do, but I figured I'd pick up hula hooping. I use whatever I can um, and in terms of my activism, and I hula hoop for peace at the Democratic National Convention in 2008 to stop the bombing of Iran. And at that time, I was delusional and actually thought that hula hooping could change the world. And that, I think that's an important point to an extent, to be an activist, to truly believe that one person can change the world. I think my mind state, the fact that I am somewhat mildly maybe delusional to believe that I can change the world as one person, um, maybe that helps in my activism, you know, to be able to see the different parts um, of my clearly you know, disordered brain that has almost killed me that can also yeah. help me. Yeah, but think about this, Melody. There mm-hmm. have been people who've been one person who've changed the world. I mean, look Indeed. at Einstein, look at mm-hmm. Da Vinci, look at Martin Luther King. Indeed. Indeed. And it takes a certain mentality to get there, I think. And it takes a certain per- persistence. And for me, uh, the same part of my mind that makes it so hard um, with the mania and with the depression, I think also happens to be the same part that gives me some gifts and the ability to see the world in a different way. Which is really important. What's the message of your book for our listeners today? Um, I would say for the people who are living with mental illness, educate yourself, advocate for yourself. Don't ever let anybody tell you that you're not capable. Raise your expectations, not just for yourself, but for your mental health providers. Um, Again, if your mind works differently, find a way for that to work for you. Um, There are great medications available. There's nutrition. There's so many ways that you can control these various illnesses, and it's not the same in each person. It's always different. It needs to be individualized when it comes to treatment. But more than anything, know that you're capable. Yeah, and and that's so important. When you speak, when you get out there and you speak in front of groups, who are the groups you're speaking in front of and what are you telling them? Mm. I, I really like to speak in front of young people, especially because mental illnesses, a lot of them appear in late adolescence, early adulthood. Um, university campuses and things like that. Uh, I also speak, I swear, at every si- book signing or university lecture, every, every place I go, there's always one mother. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not making this up. There's always one, at least one mother who comes up and is just struggling to help a child, usually an adult child living with mental illness, um, maneuver the current system that we have. Um, and often we live in a society that has criminalized mental illness. Our largest mental health facilities are prisons. Um, so that is something I run into a lot, and it's something that's important for me to talk about. We need to stop criminalizing mental illness. We are People living with mental illness are no more violent than the general population when you control for substance abuse. And if you want to talk about guns and mental illness, which it seems to be the only time we talk about mental illness is when there's some sort of shooting then we need to realize then, yeah, gun control is a mental health issue, but that's because two-thirds of all gun fatalities are suicides, and more than half of all suicides are gun-related. And there are twice as many suicides as homicides in this country. It's just not something we talk about, and we need to be talking more about it. All right. So what you're saying is that there are real heavy issues here, and we have to learn how to deal with those because maybe some of those issues are exacerbating mental illness. What do you think? Exactly, exactly. If the legislation we're trying to pass is reinforcing stigma in the terms of we're naming them after people who are victims of violent crime committed by 
people who have mental illness or the legislation in general, the way we pass them, oh, it's on the anniversary of Newtown, you decide to introduce a certain piece of legislation. All of that kind of stuff matters because the people we should be naming them after are the people who are committing suicide, not the victims of these horrible tragedies that definitely, you know, it's horrible that things like that happen. But uh, we, should, we should be focusing more, I think, on the vast majority of people living with mental illness who are violent, if ever, only towards themselves. Mm, yep. So tell us now, we have a couple minutes left, where's the hope, Melody? You're out there speaking, you're out there you know, as an activist. Where's the hope in terms of reducing and understanding mental illness, and particularly bipolar disease? I think it it's comes from a lot of outlets, but I think the kinds of research that we're doing that we need to be doing better and more of, um, a lot of that comes out of people like me, people who are living with mental illness, actually standing up and sharing their stories. I have met so many people who are so much more successful than I am, so much more intelligent than I am, who are living with serious mental illnesses who would never speak publicly about it. Um, but the more of us do that, the more it becomes clear that, Again, like I said, we are capable um, of doing a great deal. And that's where I think the hope lies, when we can get more and more people um, at higher and higher levels um, of our society, whether it be government or literature or whatever field you're in, uh, to actually take a step up and be able to speak about living with mental illness. All right. And how can people get your book? Um, It's available at bookstores everywhere. You can order it wherever. I would suggest go to your local independent bookstore and order it. Um, You can also go to my website, which is MelodyMoisey.com, M-E-L-O-D-Y-M-O-E-Z-Z-I.com. All right. And do you want to leave our listeners with anything? Um, You know, your closing thoughts. What is the main message of your book? Um, The main message of my book, I think it's hope um, and the power of just, humor and love uh, to, to change things and to aid in our healing. It's not just medication. People help, too. All right. Again, let's say the name of the book and how people can get it. Uh, it's Haldol and Hyacinth, A Bipolar Life, and uh, it's available pretty much anywhere. It was published by Avery, which is an imprint of Penguin, and my website, again, is MelodyMoisey.com. All right. And that is going to be... I'm Melody Moisey, um, and your website, again, is MelodyMoisey.com, M-O-E-Z-Z-I. Exactly. Right? M-O-E-Z-Z-I. Um, all right, and before you go, tell us how the title came up. <laughs> so Haldol was the first medication that's an antipsychotic that brought me out of mania, my um, psychotic break, actually, and brought me back into reality. Hyacinths are flowers that are actually... Uh, very meaningful for Iranians for the Persian New Year, which is in March. It's the first day of spring. Our New Year actually means something. It's the vernal equinox. Um, and hyacinths represent rebirth. Cool. All right, Melanie, I really, really appreciate you being on the program. Again, the book is Haldol. Is that, did I say that right? Haldol <laughs> and yes. hyacinths. Haldol is a drug. Yes. <laughs> so, Haldol and hyacinths, a bipolar life. And uh, really, folks, uh, read this book. It's a riveting, and it, it, it gives you such detail, but also gives you hope as well. So, again, my guest has been Melody, Melody Moisey. I want to make sure I say that right. <laughs> and it's M-O-E-Z-Z-I. 
And again, it's MelodyMoisey.com. And the book is Haldol and Hyacinths. Thanks so much for being on the program. Stay on the line with us for a second. Thank you, Patricia. All right. Thank you. All right, folks, that wraps up um, our program today. Patricia Raskin, Positive Living, right here on Voice America, America's Voice. Write to me, Patricia, at PatriciaRaskin.com. Would love to hear from you and go on to the website as well. Until next time, stay healthy, stay happy, get the support you need, and know you can make your dreams come true. I'm Patricia Raskin. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Patricia Raskin's Positive Living. Be sure to join Patricia Raskin and another amazing guest next Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have an outstanding week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 